0: Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. On today's episode, we will be revisiting the life and a selection of works from the Mercurial American director, Sam Peckinpah. Welcome back to the program. It's been a busy month away, and it is good to be back. We will be looking at a few works from the polarizing director Sam Peckinpah today. Uh, but before that, I would like to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, we've had listeners from all over the world, as per usual. This past month, uh, many have come in from uh, the United States, the UK, Greece, Israel, France, Japan. Sweden, Switzerland, Germany, Ireland, Brazil, Peru, in fact I had a recent interaction uh, with a listener from Peru, uh, a filmmaker who just shot their first feature, we had a very nice exchange recently, and we have had our first listeners from Finland and from Guam as of late, uh, and we were up to over 30 countries and over 30 of the United States, so uh, thank you very much for listening, thank you for tuning in and for supporting the show. It warms my heart and is greatly appreciated. And also, I would like to give a shout-out to my friend Laurent Morin, who composed and performed the theme music that you hear at the top of every episode, and a special shout-out as well to his mother Claire, who uh, is a big fan of the show, a big supporter of the show. And if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can reach us via the Instagram. I don't know why I say us as if this is like a, you know, a multi-person operation, as if I'm not just doing this out of my bedroom and, you know, running the whole show myself, Uh, but in any case, I gotta stop with that, Uh, so anyway, if you would like to reach me, uh, (laughs) you can uh, do it via the Instagram at podcast is the handle, and uh, feel free to follow the show there as well, that's where I put updates on uh, what's coming up next, who we're gonna be covering, and posting exact dates as well of when uh, the next episodes are supposed to come out, shoot me a DM if you'd like, those are always welcome, and... You can uh, email me as well at ClosedSetPod at gmail.com. That is ClosedSetPod at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, feedback, instructor, criticism, I say it all the time. You know what to do. Feel free. I would love to hear what you have to say. And if you're here, you probably already know this, but, uh, you know, the show is uh, available wherever you get your podcasts. Whatever your platform of choice is, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, whatever your preference, uh, please give us a like, subscribe, leave a rating uh, and review which will help with all that algorithm business and uh, help the show rank a little better. And tell a friend, if you know any uh, cinephiles, film nerds, and whatever, please uh, tell them I sent you. And so, today's order of business, Sam Peckinpah, like I said, was an accomplished director and uh, a very complicated and flawed man, a difficult man to deal with. And uh, his legacy as a filmmaker was uh, bittersweet, to say the least. Equal parts triumph and disappointment. Maybe even more disappointment. Peckinpah was known for uh, a variety of things, including his vices was a heavy boozer, a lifelong alcoholic, uh, many clashes with producers, Studio Brass did not get along with them. And uh, he is also known for uh, his graphic depictions of violence in his films. And they earned him a very sort of polarizing reputation when his films came out. And on today's show, we are going to revisit those most violent films of his. And uh, many of them are westerns, and we're going to try to figure out uh, what exactly Peng and Pa intended to say with these films. And they are, in chronological order as always, The Wild Bunch, Straw Dogs, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. But as usual, like always, we will start at the very beginning. So let us boogie. So Peckinpah was born David Samuel Peckinpah on February 21st, 1925, in Fresno, California. It's in the San Joaquin Valley in Central California. And Peckinpah's ancestry, on his father's side, that is, the Peckinpah lineage traces back to the frisian islands which are in the the northwest of europe uh but in any case peckinpah's ancestors uh actually made it out to west in the 1850s and his family ran a lumber mill on his mother's side his grandfather a man named denver s church he was a cattle rancher and peckinpah and his brother actually spent a lot of time on their grandfather's ranch shooting guns and herding cattle and you know doing all that good stuff and peckinpah grew up in an area that was still very rural at the time and many of the people who uh, lived in the Fresno area in the San Joaquin Valley at that time were actually descendants of miners and loggers and ranchers who had settled in the Old West like his family had. However, over the years, the, the area has changed pretty drastically. I mean, Fresno is basically a major Californian city now. And that is actually a recurring theme that shows up in a lot of Peckinpah's work, is this the sort of arrival of the modern world, an old way of life going extinct and the new coming in. And uh, we're going to touch more on that a little later. And so, Peckinpah grew up in Fresno, he played football in high school, but he was a little volatile as a youth. Apparently, his, his notorious combative streak, I guess, was very evident, even at a young age, to the point where his parents decided to send him to a military academy in his senior year. And after that, Peckinpah joined the Marines. This was in 1943, and uh, in 1945, at the end of World War II, he was actually sent to China. Didn't see any combat, but he was tasked with disarming and repatriating Japanese soldiers. And reportedly, I've seen this from a couple sources, Peckinpah, during his time in Asia, witnessed several acts of torture and other violent acts as well, although, from what I understand, his unit, his regiment, was not allowed to intervene. And I can only imagine that this experience would greatly influence and inform his depictions of violence on film later in his career. But in any case, when he was discharged and came back to America, he went to Fresno State College uh, and started directing plays in college. And uh, that is also where he met and married his first wife, a woman named Marie Selland, in 1947, and it was her that introduced him to the theater department. And Peckinpah went on to earn his master's degree at the University of Southern California, USC, and he became the director-in-residence at the Huntington Park Civic Theater as well, and then began working as a stagehand for a TV station in Los Angeles, although he uh, butted heads with his superiors there as well. Again, that combative streak sort of reared its ugly head yet again, and he uh, ultimately was fired. But luckily, in 1954, he began working with the director, Don Siegel. He uh, was an assistant to him on a handful of films, including Riot and Cell Block 11, Private Hell 36, which was put out by Ida Lupino's production company, we covered her on a previous episode, An Annapolis Story, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and Crime in the Streets. And it was thanks to his relationship with Don Siegel that Paw was able to moved back to television, this time as a writer and a director. And Peckinpah wrote and directed episodes of Westerns for pretty much all the most popular Western series of that time, including Gunsmoke, which ran for, I think, 20 years, Broken Arrow, Have Gun Will Travel, which starred Richard Boone, and he even wrote the script that ended up spawning the show The Rifleman, which starred Chuck Connors and ran for a handful of years on television. Uh, Another director we've covered, Joseph H. Lewis, actually directed several dozen episodes of The Rifleman, if you'd like to revisit that episode as well. And, perhaps most importantly, during his time in television, Peckinpah... Created uh, a series called *The Westerner*, which was highly acclaimed, uh, but unfortunately only ran for 13 episodes in 1960. Uh, and the series starred Brian Keith. And it was after this experience working with Peck and that Keith reportedly uh, recommended Peck and to direct the film called *The Deadly Companions* in 1961. And this ended up becoming Peck and first feature, and it was starring Brian Keith and Maureen O'Hara, who's a very very big star in her day and a, a great beauty. And it's a very simple story. Keith. Uh, accidentally shoots and kills the young son of Maureen O'Hara's character and, you know, hoping he'll find some redemption, he ends up escorting Maureen O'Hara's character and her dead son through some very dangerous territory so that she can bury him next to her late husband. And it's not a bad film. It didn't make a whole lot of noise. The year after that, however, producer uh, Richard Lyons, who was a fan of The Westerner, ended up hiring Peckinpah to direct uh, what would become his second film. And that film was called Ride the High Country. This came out in 1962. And it starred Joel McRae and Randolph Scott. It was actually Scott's last film role. And the two of them play former partners, who've seen better days. They're a little long in the tooth. And they are hired to transport a shipment of gold. And one of the two men, Randolph Scott's character, has designs on... uh, stealing the gold and taking it for himself, and shenanigans ensue. It doesn't fall into those old Western tropes, you know, the the noble gunmen and the feuding families and all that good stuff, really. It's, it's basically a morality tale, to put it in simple terms. And it was made for a very low budget. It did turn a profit in the U.S., but it basically went largely unnoticed on this side of the Atlantic. However, it was very, very highly regarded in Europe, did very well over there. And to this day, I think it's considered one of Peckinpah's best works. Uh, His next film, however, Major Dundee, came out in 1965, was a disastrous production, and it's about a Union cavalry officer who's played by Charlton Heston, and he leads a gang of Confederate prisoners and Army soldiers and Native American scouts uh, after a band of marauding Apaches during the U.S. Civil War. And, uh, like I said, a lot of difficulties during this shoot. Namely, uh, Richard Harris was very adversarial toward a lot of his male co-stars. Peckinpah, like I said, was a very, very heavy boozer. That certainly didn't help things. He abruptly fired a bunch of his crew members. The film was shot in Mexico, one of many films Peckinpah would shoot in Mexico over the course of his career. They ended up going over schedule, heavily over budget, yet another common occurrence in Peckinpah's career. And eventually, producer Jerry Resler took the film from Peckinpah, had it recut, and it did not do well at the box office. The critics did not like it, and it's really a shame because it's, it's a great assembly of talent. Charlton Heston, Richard Harris, Jim Hutton, who was Timothy Hutton's father... Uh, the great James Coburn, Mario Adorf, Senta Berger, Brock Peters, Warren Oates, Ben Johnson. It's a ridiculous cast. And also worth noting, uh, a woman named Begonia Palacios played a small role in Major Dundee, and she and Peckinpah met during the making of this film, and uh, the two of them ended up becoming husband and wife. They were married not long after. And I have uh, there's conflicting accounts. Some sources say they were married and divorced twice, others say three times. Uh, But in any case, they seemed to have a pretty tumultuous relationship, and they had a daughter together. And so after the making of Major Dundee, Peckinpah was hired to direct The Cincinnati Kid. However, the producer, Martin Ratsahoff... He apparently had heard that Peckinpah was very difficult to work with, he found out about a lot of the problems that had plagued uh, Major Dundee and its production, and also, Peckinpah had decided to shoot the film in black and white, and from what I understand, there were a couple nude scenes that Peckinpah had shot, and I guess that was all the excuse Ratzahoff needed to can him and give him his walking papers. And uh, Norman Jewison ended up directing the film, and it became a huge hit, and it's got a great cast, Steve McQueen, Edward G. Robertson, Carl Malden, and margaret Rip Torn. But unfortunately for Peckinpah, I mean, he became damaged goods after this, and he was basically uh, blacklisted from the industry. But luckily, the year after, in 1966, a producer named Daniel Melnick basically took a flyer on Peckinpah and uh, hired him to direct an adaptation of Catherine Ann Porter's novel, Noon Wine, for television. And the adaptation starred Jason Robards and Olivia de Havilland, and it was highly acclaimed upon release, and it is still very, very highly regarded today, and it's... it's a nice turn from Peckinpah. You know, it's... Some Very intimate, dramatic material compared to uh, a lot of his other films. And luckily, it got him another shot as a Hollywood director. And so, the first film that Peckinpah directed as part of this comeback of sorts of his is uh, regarded as one of the best Westerns ever made and probably his magnum opus. And that film is The Wild Bunch, which came out in 1969. Now, this film is set in the early 20th century, and it follows a group of aging outlaws who are led by a man named Pike Bishop. And they head south to Mexico after a disastrous and fruitless and violent robbery of a railroad company office. They end up doing business in Mexico with a Mexican general named Mapache, who is fighting the rebels during the Mexican Revolution. They agreed to organize a caper where they steal some weapons for him in exchange for gold. However, one of the members of the Wild Bunch, who is Mexican, Angel, he ends up keeping some of the weapons and giving them to his villagers, his fellow villagers, who are rebelling against these Mexican troops. And the General Mapache learns of this, captures Angel, tortures him, has his way with him, kills him, and long story short, a climactic and very bloody battle between these federales and the gang ensues. And meanwhile, while all this is playing out, a gang of bounty hunters are hot on the gang's trail, and this gang is employed by the railroad company, and they are led by a man named Deke Thornton, who is a former friend and running mate of Pike's. And we also find out fairly early on in the film that these bounty hunters and the railroad company basically set up the Wild Bunch with that heist at the beginning of the film. And they walked into an ambush. After the robbery is completed, with a shit ton of collateral damage, the bunch go to their hideout to split the score, and they find out that there was no gold or silver in those bags that they stole, but in fact a a bunch of steel washers.
1: We shot our way out of that town for a dollar's worth of steel holes. They set it up. They?! Who in the hell is they?!
0: (laughs) And there's a lot to talk about about this film. First and foremost, I would say, and this is gonna sound a little lofty, but anyway, I would say this film kinda redefined the American Western. And granted, in Italy you had Sergio Leone and Sergio Corbucci who were making their spaghetti Westerns, and that's... you know, that's a bit of a different animal. In America, though, the Wild Bunch defied convention in several ways. For one thing, it kind of debunks all those old sort of romanticized and, you know, mythologized ideas about the Old West, you know, that you would see in, you know, the John Wayne films and the westerns of old. And the acid westerns did that a bit as well, but not nearly in as crude a manner, you know, films like Bad Company, which was directed by Robert Benton, a film I highly recommend. But anyway, the point being is that these characters, the Wild Bunch, this gang of outlaws, they aren't your classic noble gunmen. They're not the kind of guys who only shoot when provoked. They're antiheroes. They're career thieves. And they have no guilt whatsoever about leaving innocent casualties in their wake we see at the beginning of the film the robbery of the railroad office these civilians from the temperance union in town basically get caught in the crossfire and all hell breaks loose a lot of them are shot some of them get trampled by horses some of them get used as human shields and after the fact the wild bunch doesn't really show any remorse or concern for the carnage that they left behind however that said for whatever it's worth they aren't entirely without principles and Pike makes that plain enough at one point in the film where he says the line, When you side with a man, you stay with him.
1: What in the hell's the matter with you, old man? Leave him alone! Oh. He's gonna get us all killed. I'm gonna get rid of him. We're not get rid of anybody. We're gonna stick together just like it used to be. When you side with a man, you stay with him. And if you can't do that, you're like some animal. You're finished. We're finished. All of us.
0: However... Pike has also failed to live by those words. We see in a flashback sequence when he and Deke were running mates and friends, and they get caught at a cat house by police, Pike splits and evades capture, Deke ends up getting arrested, and again we see it towards the end of the film when Angel gets captured, and they basically leave him to mapache to have his way with him, presumably out of self-preservation, because there's a handful of them, and lord knows how many hundreds of Mopachi's troops. But you know, Pike's failures and his hypocrisy seems to eat at him, and eventually he and the gang choose to Strap on their holsters and take on Mapache's entire squad in what's basically a suicide mission, but they do it on principle. And another important thing to address, and again, that's going to be the overarching theme of today's episode, is the violence. It's graphic violence, the kind that had never been seen before in Hollywood films, right? We're not talking about duels between the two fastest guns in the West. The two long action sequences that bookend the film, the robbery of the railroad company and the shootout at Mapache's compound at the end, they're graphic, they're visceral, there's nothing quick or clean about them, right? It's not Chris Partlow in The Wire, where one to the back of the head, you throw some lie on the poor prick and go home to watch a bonanza. It's a disaster. All hell breaks loose. And these action sequences have... they've been immortalized. They've basically become the stuff of legend, just as pieces of filmmaking, if nothing else, because, keep in mind, you're dealing with hundreds of extras that are involved. There are these elaborate multi-camera setups, and a lot of the footage is being shot at different speeds. There's a lot of use of slow motion... And Peckinpah talked about his use of slow motion in an inter- interview, and he basically said that, you know, when you're on the receiving end of an act of violence, it it basically can feel like you know, an eternity.
2: Well, if you've ever been in, um, in a fight, or in battle, or in a car accident or something, I think you'll notice that uh, time seems to stretch out for you. Uh, for an example, when uh, Yolanda got trampled by the horse, this was not a... Dummy, this was a very lovely woman. Uh, I thought it went on for an hour. Actually, it was only, I think, about three seconds. But uh, the moment stretched forever. And uh, I've noticed that before with my own reactions, and I tried to incorporate that into, the, into this film, in the battles, to hold on to a moment. Uh, because during, I try to involve the audience in the battles to make you become part of them.
0: And that's a technique I used. And again, just editing those sequences together alone is a very, very tall order, and it's wonderfully done uh, by Lou Lombardo, who's a wonderful editor, did a lot of work with Robert Altman in the 70s. And another theme, which we sort of touched upon at the top of the show, is the demise of the Old West. These outlaws know their way of life is going extinct, and they say it pretty explicitly. And they talk about making one last score and cashing out, but then, of course, they wonder aloud what the hell they're going to do with themselves after they cash out, because it's the only way of life they've ever known. This
1: was going to be my... Ain't getting around any better. I'd like to make one good score and back off. Back off to what?
0: And the modern world is approaching. And the most obvious example of that in this film is the scene where Mapachi rides into his compound in a car. And the Wild Bunch see him arrive and they're, they're in awe of this machine. Keep in mind, these are some some grizzled old outlaws who've gotten around on horseback all their lives.
1: I saw one just like it, in Waco. Run on steam? No, on alcohol or gasoline. Hey, Frank, you know what I hear? I hear they think out one of those things up north that can fly. Ah, uh, that was a balloon, you damned old fool. No, the old man's right. They got motors, wings, go sixty miles in less than an hour. Gonna use them in the war, they say. Well, let's go and talk to the general. Automobile, our extra horses.
0: And so all this to say, this this bunch, they know the times are changing, and they doubt they'll be able to adapt to the modern world, and so that final battle with Mapache's troops, yeah, of course they know it's a suicide mission, but, you know, it's, at least it's them going out on their own terms. That's what it comes down to. And let's talk about the cast quickly. William Holden plays Pike Bishop, and it's a different turner from him, you know, this sort of grizzled old outlaw, and he's fantastic in it. And one of the great, great Hollywood actors. He was in a ton of classic films. Sunset Boulevard, Stalag like 17... Uh, he was in Network a few years after The Wild Bunch came out. He's great in that as well. And he's fantastic in this. I love him. Maybe my favorite performance of his.
1: You two boys don't like equal shares. Why in the hell don't you just take all of it? Well, why don't you answer me, you damn yellow-livered trash? Now, Pike, you know I damn don't well. know a damn thing except I either lead this bunch or end it right
0: now. Ernest Borgenine as well is in this. He plays Dutch was basically uh, Pike's second-in-command, uh, another wonderful actor who had a very, very long career and lived long as well. He lived well into his 90s, uh, won an Oscar for the film Marty in 1955, I believe it was, uh, was in The Dirty Dozen, An Emperor of the North Pole, and a bunch of other things. You
1: boys want to move on or stay here and give him a decent burial? He was a good man, and I think we ought to bury him. He's dead, and he's got a lot of good men back there to keep him company. Too damn many. I think the boys are right. I'd like to say a few words for the dear dead departed. And maybe a few hymns would be in order. Followed by a church supper with a choir. You crazy bastards. Both of
0: you. And we have Ben Johnson and Warren Oates who play the Gorge Brothers. Both of them are regulars of Peck and Paws. They did a bunch of work with him. And they are fantastic in this as well. We're going to talk a little bit more about them later.
1: <laughs> While well, he was doing all that planning... Me and Tector was getting our bell-rope pulled by two. Two, mind you, hondo whores! <laughs> and Pike was dreaming of washes. <laughs> you were matching whores <laughs> in tandem. That's <laughs> that? That's one behind the other. Door. <laughs> that's right. That's what we're doing. <laughs>
0: Uh, We have Edmund O'Brien, who plays Sykes. Uh, He won an Oscar as well in the 50s for a film called The Barefoot Contessa, and we talked a little bit about him as well in our Ida Lupino episode. Uh, He was in her films, The Hitchhiker and The Bigamist, Brooklyn Boy.
1: I expect to find you here. Why not? I sent him back. That's all I said I'd do. They didn't get very far. I figured. What are your plans? Drift around down here, try to stay out of jail. Well, me and the boys here, we got some work to do. You want to come along? Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do.
0: And we have Jamie Sanchez, who plays Angel, who is the youngest member of the gang, and it's his idea to claim some of the weapons for themselves so that he can bring them back to his village and they can arm themselves and, and fight Mapache's troops, essentially. And uh, Jamie Sanchez is very good in this as well. He's in the great Sydney Lumet film The Pawn Broker, which is to come out in 1964, a few years before this. And I believe it was that performance that made Paul want to cast him in this. Uh, we have Robert Ryan, who plays Deke, the head of this gang of bounty hunters that's pursuing the Wild Bunch. Robert Ryan, another fantastic actor. His best-known performances are as racists oddly enough, uh, in Crossfire, for which he got nominated for an Oscar, Odds Against Tomorrow, which is a great noir film with Harry Belafonte and Ed Begley Sr., Bad Day at Black Rock as well with Spencer Tracy and Ernest Borgnine, coincidentally. And he was also in The Dirty Dozen with Ernest Borgnine. Tell me, Mr. Harrigan,
1: how does it feel getting paid for it? Getting paid to sit back and hire your killings with the law's arms around you? How does it feel to be so goddamn right? Good. You dirty son of a bitch. You've got 30 days to get Pike or 30 days back to Yuma. You're my Judas Goat, Mr. Thornton.
0: We have the Martin and LQ Jones. Both of them are Bounty Hunters and Deke's crew. And the Bounty Hunters are really portrayed in, in an unflattering light. Some people I've I've read in reviews describe them as hyenas. I thought of them as vultures, basically, but it's same idea really they're bloodthirsty they're basically morally bankrupt and we see them at the end of the shootouts whenever they stumble upon you know a pile of dead bodies they uh, immediately go through their pockets and pillage the corpses and uh, see what goods they can take for themselves uh, really reprehensible human beings
1: you stupid damn fools why did you shoot this employee and let the others get away why did you that employee my first shot this man right here liar He's shooting Lloyd full of holes. Why, I was dropping this bandit. And them others too. Why, I must have killed all three of them. You must to kill all three of point. them, boy. What do you think you did? I bought an actor you spot. Liar! Black liar! You shouldn't talk like that to me. I'm sorry. Come on, TC. Help me get his boots.
0: Uh, and LQ Jones, in fact, passed away recently, a couple of months ago, at the age of 94. He was uh, a great character actor, and uh, you might know him from Casino, the Martin Scorsese film. He plays the, the county commissioner, Pat Webb, and he and De Niro have a really great scene together. But in any case, moving on. We also have Emilio Fernandez, who plays Mapache, the general. Uh, he was a very prolific director in Mexico, and directed a film called Maria Candelaria in 1944, which won the Palme d'Or at uh, the Cannes Film Festival, which is no easy feat. And uh, he was another Peck and paw regular. We have Albert Decker, who plays Harrigan. He works for the railroad company, who employs these bounty hunters. And uh, this was Albert Decker's last film. He died not long after the shoot was completed. And he was in a lot of great films as well. Worked with Elia Kazan a couple times in, uh, on Gentleman's Agreement in East of Eden. He, he was also in Kiss Me Deadly, which is one of the great noir films. And we have Bo Hopkins as well, who plays one of the crooks who assists the bunch on their robbery of the railroad company. And we have Dub Taylor, another Paw regular, who plays the preacher of the Temperance Union at the beginning of the film. Now let's move on to some production notes. So Warner Brothers was the studio that put this out. And as part of his comeback, Peckinpah initially was going to direct another film. I believe it was titled The Diamond Story. But the studio found out that 20th Century Fox was planning on making Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, another western with very similar themes. And so they decided to go with The Wild Bunch instead, hoping they would beat Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to the theaters. Now, Wayland Green, I believe, wrote the original script. He and Peckinpah rewrote the script together. They collaborated on it. And as for the casting, Lee Marvin was initially set to play Pike Bishop... But he ended up bowing out to go make a film called Paint Your Wagon. I think they were paying him more, so he ended up going with the more lucrative opportunity. And William Holden was ultimately cast. I heard that Sterling Hayden was one of many actors considered to play Pike. That would have been perfect casting, but even still, Holden's fantastic in this. Also, Ernest Borgnine was cast as Dutch uh, on the strength of this performance in The Dirty Dozen. I believe Robert Ryan was as well. Uh, The film was shot entirely in Mexico, a favorite location of Peckinpah's. He was very fond of the country and its people and their traditions. The shoot was initially scheduled for 70 days. Peckinpah yet again went over schedule and heavily over budget. I think they went $3 million over budget, to be specific. And the studio was very pleased with the film at first. They basically released it as Peckinpah had intended it. But because of the graphic violence, like I said, nothing like that had ever been seen before in a Hollywood film. The film got a very polarizing reception at first because of it. And that prompted the studio executives to trim some of the footage without even consulting Peckinpah, and, and he was not pleased about it. I can only imagine what that temper of his. However, the film did do pretty well at the box office. It beat Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to the theaters by a few months, but didn't make nearly as much money. In fact, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid became the highest-grossing film of 1969 and got nominated for a ton of Oscars, won a few of them, directed by George Roy Hill. And, like I said, it shares similar themes, namely that theme of the Old West and their old way of life going extinct. And you basically see the two bandits trying as hard as they can to preserve that way of life that they've grown accustomed to until eventually they really don't have much choice but to go down swinging, or go down shooting, in this case. That said, The Wild Bunch did get nominated for a couple Oscars. Jerry Fielding got nominated for the score, and it's fantastic. Those drums, especially at the beginning of the film... While the opening sequence is building and they're heading to the heist of the railroad company, and it really helps build the tension. It's fantastic. And Peckinpah and Waylon Green got nominated for their screenplay. And the film is heralded as Peckinpah's magnum opus, as his masterpiece, essentially. And, like I said, those two sequences, the heist at the beginning and the shootout at the end, uh, have become the stuff of legend, and rightfully so. And, again, one of the best westerns ever made, if not one of the best films ever made, and one that basically defied all the conventions of the American Western that came before it. And perhaps most importantly, in keeping with the theme of today's episode, it showed violence for what it really is. There's nothing pretty about it.
2: I, I think that uh, I got so fed up with the Hollywood Western, per se, uh, the fun and games approach to killing, that I tried to show that it is fairly uh, ugly and horrible. The fact is that there's a certain poetry and fascination in it, is the other side of the coin, which I think is the instinctual side of the coin, which goes back a long time before we
0: uh, knew how to write. And so the year after The Wild Bunch came out, Paul put out a film called The Ballad of Cable Hogue, which is a very, very different turn from him. It's basically a comedic Western, and it's about a small-time businessman in the Old West who, like The Wild Bunch, uh, has to sort of reckon with the modern world. And it starred Jason Robards, wonderful actor, Uh, Stella Stevens, and it had a handful of Peckinpah regulars, David Warner, Strother Martin, LQ Jones, R.G. Armstrong, Slim Pickens, all fantastic character actors. However, more of the same, it was a messy shoot, Peckinpah's boozing, of course, didn't help, his temper, the bad weather kind of threw a wrench into the shooting schedule, and yet again, the shoot went late, they went over budget, And it basically ruined his relationship with Warner Brothers. And the film, unfortunately, didn't get much attention when it came out. But it is very highly regarded today, and I believe the film was a personal favorite of Peckinpah's. Now we come to the next film I want to talk about, Straw Dogs, which came out in 1971. Now this film, in keeping with today's theme, it follows David Sumner, who's a mild-mannered mathematician from the States, and Amy, his Cornish wife. And the two of them have left the United States to get away from the mounting unrest and violence and tension... And they move to Cornish country, where Amy is from. And we see them getting taken advantage of by some of the locals. One of them is an ex-lover of Amy's. They get terrorized in a variety of disturbing ways. And eventually, a handful of these locals put their house under siege. And basically, after doing his damnedest to avoid confrontation and violence throughout the film, David is basically left with no choice but to defend his home against these rabid invaders and turn violent himself And some very, very disturbing scenes ensue. And from early on were made uneasy as viewers because the locals are clearly wary of David and maybe they dislike him for marrying one of their own and David and Amy hire a few of these local men to work on their garage and to put a new roof in and they convince him to hire a few more guys but of course they're all dragging their asses and like I said, they begin terrorizing him little by little at first they find their cat they hang the cat in their bedroom basically just to prove that they can do it
1: Did you hear me? Scott or Causey To prove to you they could get into your bedroom. I don't believe that. Well, who else is around all the time? Maybe uh, we've left all the doors unlocked. I mean, it could have been anybody passing. Anybody passing? David, a complete stranger, comes into our house and decides to strangle our cat and hang her in the wardrobe. Somebody pausing.
0: But even still, David remains averse to confrontation. He's reluctant to accuse any of them directly of killing the cat and hanging it in their bedroom. And this reluctance from David puts a strain on his marriage with Amy. You know, between his reluctance to confront these guys and their decision to leave the United States to get away from the violence, she begins to lose respect for him. She begins to look at him as a coward.
1: I was involved with my work. You want something out of me that is not right to deliver. That's not what I was there for. know why you're here why could it be because there's no place else to hide
0: and later on in the film we see these men these locals who are working on the garage they dupe david into joining them on a duck hunt and they take him out there they convince him that you know they'll send the birds his way so that he can finish them off however they leave him there and two of the men one of them being charlie amy's ex they make their way over to david's house and They rape Amy. And she never tells David about the rape. And not just that, the men keep working on the house. They keep playing nice with David. And one night, one foggy night, David is heading home. And he hits a local man, an unstable local man named Henry Niles with his car, not knowing that Henry Niles has just killed a young girl. And so David takes him to his house to call for a doctor. The girl's father, Tom, finds out that Henry's at David's house, gathers a handful of the men who have been working on David's house, including her two rapists. They head over to their house and the siege and some disturbing violence ensues after David refuses to give Henry up to them.
1: Listen, Mr. Sumner. We come to get this bloody freak. We're gonna get him. With your cooperation or without it. David, stop it!
0: And while David's trying to hold them off, the men get drunker, they get more belligerent. They start smashing their windows, they start throwing rats in the house, and like I said, they're terrorizing them. And eventually, we see a timid, mild-mannered man in David become violent himself and defend his home because these men have given him no other choice.
1: What are you going to do on your own?
2: Do we have any ropes? Huh? I'm talking to you. Do we have any ropes? No. I suggest you get out of the way of the windows. I also suggest that you turn the rest of the light on upstairs. Do we have any wire?
1: I told you I won't help you! I see. Why don't we entertain Niles?
0: And we see all kinds of chaos erupt. There's boiling oil. A man is beaten to death with a poker. Another is killed with one of those sort of old-timey man traps. And of the films that we're going to talk about today, Straw Dogs probably has the lowest body count, but it's easily the most disturbing of the four films that we're going to speak of today. And there's different kinds of violence in this film than there is in The Wild Bunch. Like I said, Amy gets raped. There's this sort of xenophobia and this kind of pack mentality that we see in these locals, right? And it seems to me, and I could be wrong about this because, again, what the fuck do I know, but it seems to me I get this the impression that these are men who basically engage in violence just for sport, if nothing else. I think what Peckinpah meant to say with this film is that pretty much every one of us has these instincts, that animal in us, that sort of primal thing that'll rear its ugly head and come to the surface when the right buttons are pushed and when we're backed into a corner.
1: This is where I live. This is me. I will not allow violence against this house.
0: And I think also the film kind of deals with masculinity, to a certain extent, toxic or otherwise. And there's a very big contrast between David, Dustin Hoffman's character, and the other men of the film, the locals, his attackers. For one thing, you know, Hoffman's an academic, he's mild-mannered, very timid, averse to confrontation, like I said, scared shitless of violence. Meanwhile, his attackers, they check off all those sort of conventional, superficial, rural mailboxes, right? The, you know, from their builds, they work with their hands, they hunt, you know. And oddly, fucked up as it sounds, I think it's with that in mind that Peck and Paw kind of approached the rape scene. Because, and this is gonna sound strange, but the rape scene with Charlie, Amy's ex, ends up becoming consensual. And while that's happening, there are shots peppered in of David by himself in the field on his duck hunt. And then, of course, you know, Amy's second attacker shows up and things change. And I don't know, maybe it's Amy trying to sort of defend herself psychologically from the attack and maybe pretend it's David that's there. Maybe those shots of David in the field by himself are meant to just sort of contrast how different he and his attackers are as men. I really don't know. And again, I'm not trying to justify or rationalize the rape. I'm just trying to figure out what Peckinpah intended to do with it and what would make something like that become consensual. But again, if you see the film, I mean, you can draw your own conclusions. Let's talk about the cast quickly. So we have Dustin Hoffman who plays David. Again, Dustin Hoffman, one of the greats. Two-time Oscar winner, one for Kramer vs. Kramer and Rain Man. Uh, Was in a bunch of classics, The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy. Uh, He plays David in this. Susan George plays his wife, Amy. She was uh, a British actress and very young in this. I think she was in her early 20s. And she uh, later starred in Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry with Peter Fonda a couple years after this.
1: You're a coward. Oh, no. And I'm a coward plain and simple. <laughs> I'm not. I don't blame you for hiding in your study. I don't, I don't want to hide there with you. I, I can't anymore.
0: Peter Vaughan plays Tom Hedden, the father of the young girl who is murdered by Henry Niles and who leads the siege on David's house. Peter Vaughan, fantastic actor, was in Time Bandits. The remains of the day, and he also played Maester Aemon on Game of Thrones.
1: Sorry about my uncle Harry, but I think he's a bit taken with drink. Oh, I do beg your pardon, Mr. Harry. Where? I'll pay for the American gentleman's cigarettes. Oh no, that's okay.
2: I. Sorry, right. I got it, sir.
1: Garage coming along. Norman fixing it up, all right? Yeah. And I'll pay for the glass. And I'll even pay for the little bit of plaster to put on your bleeding finger. But I do think I should have another pint to take me home.
0: Uh, we have Del Henney who plays Charlie, Amy's ex and one of her rapists. Ken Hutchison plays Norman Scutt, her other rapist and one of the men who is working on the garage. Jim Norton, not the comedian, the Irish actor, plays uh, Chris Causey, another one of these attackers. And who has an obsession with rats. It's
2: not a rat. See a rat. Kill a rat. That's me, that's Chris
0: cozy <laughs> I'll be lost with that, I suppose. That's true, I'll tell you straight. a thing you ever see around these parts is a rat. If it's a summer... <laughs> Rats is life! <laughs> uh, T.P. McKenna, another Irish actor, plays uh, Major John Scott, the magistrate. He was in The Girl with Green Eyes with Rita Tushingham. He was in Charge of the Light Brigade, which was directed by Tony Richardson, and he was also in uh, Anne of the Thousand Days as well. And we have David Warner and paw regular like I said And who actually passed away uh, Not long ago May rest in peace uh, He doesn't say much in this He plays Henry Niles The unstable man Who kills the young girl And who David runs over With his car And who is the target Of the siege The initial target Of the siege uh, And like I said David Warner doesn't say much In this film But it is a very Very good performance From him And uh, an off-putting character To say the least uh, And also you'll notice In the film That David Warner's character Walks with a limp That is in fact real At the time, Peckinpah cast Warner in the film, he uh, was recovering from an accident that had damaged his legs. And he was uncredited in the film, and some people think that's because it would have been difficult to get him insured because of the injury. But in any case, the title of the film, Straw Dogs, is taken from the Tao Te Ching, which basically likens people to ancient straw dogs meaning that they basically have ceremonial value and not much else and can be easily discarded after use. You know, basically saying that there isn't much value to human life. And the film is based on the novel The Siege of Trencher's Farm by Gordon M. Williams, although Peckinpah and David Zella goodman uh, only kept the siege from the book in the final script. They reworked it extensively, and they basically threw out everything else. And uh, Williams was not happy with Peckinpah's adaptation... And uh, there's an old interview in which Begginpah makes his opinion of Williams' work known pretty bluntly.
2: I think Mr. Williams <laughs> has a penchant for uh, his own work. I don't.
0: And Dustin Hoffman beat out a lot of actors for the part of David, namely Donald Sutherland, Jack Nicholson, Stacey Keach, who I love, and Bo Bridges, and uh, Susan George... Beat out Charlotte Rampling, Helen Mirren, Diana Rigg, and Jacqueline Bissett for her part. And the film was shot on location, in Cornwall, and they did the interiors at Twickenham Studios in London. Uh, But it was a difficult production, yet again. It's not a Peckinpah film if the production isn't messy. Peckinpah and George, Susan George, had a love-hate relationship from what I understand. And, naturally, there was tension over, uh, you know, the shooting of the rape scene, and understandably so. can only imagine what that must have been like. And, as per usual, Peckinpah was boozing pretty heavily. He and the crew would engage in long drinking sessions after the day's shoot, and apparently there was some roughhousing with the cast and crew. And Peckinpah, to make matters worse, even got pneumonia during the shoot, which didn't help things. And uh, the producers uh, got fed up of Peckinpah's behavior and demanded that he at least curb his drinking during the shoot. Uh, And they threatened to fire him if, uh, you know, if he didn't get his shit together. And so after the film was completed, some of the footage of uh, the rape sequence was cut so the film could get an R rating in the United States. And yet again, as with the Wild Bunch at first, the film got some very, very polarizing reviews. Many critics condemned the violence of the film. A lot of them claimed that Peckinpah was sort of glamorizing rape, that he was glorifying misogyny and chauvinism. And keep in mind, this came out in 1971, the same year A Clockwork Orange came out, which also had its own uh, pretty disturbing ...depictions of violence and toxicity, for lack of a better term. That said, despite the controversy, the film did fare pretty well at the box office. Jerry Fielding got nominated for an Oscar for his score, his music, yet again. And years after it came out, over 50 years removed from its release... uh, ...it is regarded as one of Peckinpah's best films. And so after Straw Dogs, Peckinpah went back to America... ...to make a film called Junior Bonner, which came out in 1972... ...and it's about an aging rodeo rider, played by Steve McQueen... ...who returns home for competition after many years away, and he reunites with his estranged family, and Robert Preston and the great Ida Lupino play McQueen's parents in the film, and Ben Johnson is in it as, as well, again, another Paw regular, and it's uh, a non-violent film. <laughs> uh, it got mixed reviews, didn't make its budget back, but uh, it has earned some some respect over the years. And that same year, 1972, Paw and McQueen reunited for a film called The Getaway, and it starred McQueen as Doc McCoy, who is a criminal who gets paroled from prison with the help of a big-shot businessman in exchange for planning and executing a bank robbery. And, of course, the robbery goes wrong, some double-crosses ensue, and Doc and his wife Carol, who sold him out, go on the run and try to flee to Mexico with uh, Crooks and Cops in Hot Pursuit. And, you know, it's a superficial film. It's got the car chases, it's got the action sequences, the shootouts, there's some comic relief. There is a bit of a love story part to it, you know, with Doc and Carol trying to reconcile after she betrays him, essentially. And I didn't like Ellie McGraw's performance in it. She was kind of stiff and wooden in it, and I believe she wasn't happy with the performance herself. Uh, and, you know, Steve McQueen's not a master thespian himself. It's an okay film. Ben Johnson's in it, although not for very long. Al Letieri, who played Salato in The Godfather, is in this, and he's actually pretty good in this, I gotta say. He provides some of the comic relief with Sally Struthers, who was in All in the Family. Uh, Slim Pickens, Bo Hopkins, Dub Taylor, some Peck and Peckinpah regulars show up in this film in smaller parts as well. Richard Bright does as well. And, I don't know, Peck and McQueen basically both needed a hit, and they got it. The film ended up grossing nearly $40 million, and that's basically what it comes down to. <laughs> the next film Peckinpah made is another one I want to talk about. The third in these four violent films that we're going to be looking at is Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which came out in 1973. And this film is mostly set in the late 19th century, and it follows Pat Garrett, who's played by the great James Coburn, who is a former outlaw who's just been appointed sheriff in New Mexico. And he is tasked with capturing the notorious outlaw Billy the Kid, who's played by Chris Christopherson. And these two men have history. They're friends. And at the beginning of the film, Garrett sits Billy down and tells him of his mission, out of respect for their friendship and their history. And he basically tells Billy that, you know, after a few days, after a bit of a grace period, that he's going to have to track Billy down and either bring him in or put him down. You want it
1: straight? That's what you're here for? The electorate. Once you've gone, out of the country. But well, are they telling me? Or are they asking me? I'm asking you. But in five days, I'm making you. So my take over Sheriff Lincoln County.
0: And Garrett does manage to capture Billy at first, but he manages to escape, and so Garrett's left with little choice but to pursue him. The governor of the state and a few other big shots have a lot riding on Billy's capture, so they send a lackey to join Garrett on the way, you know, basically to make sure that Billy is caught or put down, and eventually, hard as he tries to put it off and reluctant as he is to perform what's basically a thankless job, Pat Garrett does find Billy, tracks him down at an old hideout at Fort Sumner, And he completes the feat. And I really like this film. I know The Wild Bunch is basically regarded as Peckinpah's masterpiece. This one is my favorite of his. And it's similar themes to The Wild Bunch. You know, the ways of the Old West are going extinct. But in this film, progress in the modern world show up in the form of government and law and order. We see Garrett become a sheriff. And he is now beholden to a group of big shots that are known as the Santa Fe Ring. Which is basically a group of powerful people, big shots, politicians, some robber baron types. Who have basically seized control of the state. And Garrett's basically sided with them out of self-interest. There's nothing righteous about his appointment to sheriff, and they've made him sheriff knowing that he has history with Billy the Kid and because they want him to track him down and and put him down.
1: This territory is vast and primitive. There is money here, growing investments, and uh, political interests. We must protect these investments so that the area can continue to prosper and grow. I believe you rode with the kid, didn't you, sheriff? I did. Then you must be aware of his moves. Well, I know Billy, and he ain't exactly predictable. Oh, come now, Sheriff. For a man who's half outlaw himself and still smart enough to be elected sheriff by Chisholm and the other big ranchers, I expect better than that. Now, can you bring him in, or should we look elsewhere? Oh, I can bring him in. The big peckerheads still mess things up by starting another cattle war. I can assure you, Mr. Garrett, that Chisholm and the others have been advised to recognize their position. And in this particular game, there are only a few plays left. I'd advise you to grab onto a winning hand while you have a chance.
0: And Garrett says pretty plainly in the film that he wants to live a long life and get in on some of the perks that the Santa Fe ring has to offer, but then we see him sort of putting off his pursuit of Billy. He's taking his time, he's getting his jollies, and there's some self-loathing there, perhaps most importantly. I mean he's betrayed his friend, he's sold out, he's given up his integrity for comfort and security, essentially. But he can only delay the inevitable for so long. And on the other side of that you have Billy the Kid, who has no interest in changing with the times.
1: Sheriff Pat Garrett. Sold out to Santa Fe Ray. How does it feel? It uh... feels like
0: times have
1: changed times maybe
0: not me and unlike pat garrett and despite being a career criminal billy seems to have some respect for the land that territory and that that way of life of his that's going extinct and we see it especially in his scenes with paco who's a mexican man who's being threatened by a powerful cattle rancher and so let's talk about the cast quickly james coburn like i said this might be my favorite performance of his that voice of his first of all never gets old and he is fantastic in this as Pat Garrett. It's not an over-the-top performance by any means. There's nothing big about his performance, but he hits all those notes. You know, his confidence as a gunman, his self-loathing, his feelings of betrayal over becoming sheriff in his pursuit of Billy. He really is fantastic in this. I love him in it.
1: Country's gotta make a choice. Time's over for drifters is outlaws and the backbone. I'm gonna tell you this once. I don't want to have to say it again country's getting old and i'm to get old with it and the kid don't want it that way might be a better man for it i hate judging but i don't want you explaining nothing to me and i don't want you saying nothing about the kid and nobody else in my goddamn county
0: uh we have chris christopherson as well who plays billy the kid a bit of an odd casting choice because billy the kid the real billy the kid i believe was 21 or 22 when he was killed chris christopherson was well into his 30s when this film was made uh, but still a very good performance from him and Christopherson was a singer-songwriter for those who don't know but he was in some pretty good films over the course of his life he was an Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore for one thing with Ellen Burstyn, the Martin Scorsese film and he's very good in this as well
1: Have you ever been to California? Not yet I ain't either <laughs> They're sure pushing on me to go somewhere Yeah, you're leaving, with would sure give Garrett some size I reckon he's giving me about all the time he can. Mexico might not be bad for a couple of months. Depends on who you are. I reckon.
0: We have Jason Robards comes back in a small part as Governor Lou Wallace, and he and Coburn have a great scene together. And we have Barry Sullivan as well who shows up in a small part as Chisholm, the powerful rancher who is at odds with the Mexican landowners, and who is also at odds with Billy the Kid. Barry Sullivan, for those who don't know, was in uh, the great film The Bad and the Beautiful of a Sentiminelli film with Lana Turner and Kirk Douglas.
1: Sheriff, tell me something. Why did you ride all the way out here? We thought maybe you'd heard something. Yeah, I'll tell you what I heard. Billy the Kid is in Tuscosa. Billy the Kid is in Tombstone. Billy the Kid is in Mexico, Tularosa, Socorro, White Oaks. And Billy the Kid is at my table right at this moment, eating tacos and green chili peppers with my niece, just like old times. You stay over supper?
0: We have R.G. Armstrong, comes back in this yet again, as one of James Coburn's deputies, Pat Garrett's deputies, rather, I should say.
1: I count eight days till dawn, Billy. Best be on your knees and making an acquaintance of your lord and master. Pat? Keep that mule's asshole away from me before I have to break him. Surely wished you'd try, son. I got my shotgun full of 16 thin dimes. Enough to spread you out like a crazy woman's quilt. Ah. Why don't you sing a song of Jesus while they're still away? Bob. Bob. Damn it. If you mess around with him one more time, I'll have to send your ass back to
0: Texas. And we have Richard Bright, Harry Dean Stanton, one of the great character actors, LQ Jones again, all of them are running mates of Billy the Kids, and they show up at various points in the film. Emilio Fernandez plays Paco, who's a friend of Billy's, and who is basically being outmuscled by uh, Chisholm and his goons. Slim Pickens comes back yet again, plays a sheriff, who aids Pat Garrett in his pursuit of Billy, however briefly, and Katie Jurado plays his wife. Uh, And she uh, was a Mexican actress and got nominated for an Oscar uh, many years before Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid in 1954 for a film called Broken Lance. And Peckinpah himself shows up in a tiny part towards the end of the film. And lastly, we have Bob Dylan, who plays a drifter named Alias. Doesn't say a whole lot in the film, but he does have a good bit of screen time. Dylan did do the music for this film, perhaps most importantly, and one of the songs of the film's soundtrack is Knocking on Heaven's Door which is a classic, and I love the way they used it. It plays over the death of Slim Pickens' character after he's been fatally wounded in a shootout with some outlaws. And it's a really, really powerful scene. They kind of cut it a little short. I kind of wish they had sat with it a little longer, but it's wonderful. Unfortunately, and yet again, the making of this film was pretty disastrous. (laughs) So MGM put the film out, and the head of MGM was James Aubrey, who had a reputation for being very meddlesome. And some problems surfaced from the jump because he would not give Peckinpah the crew or the resources or the equipment he needed to make the film. And naturally, some technical problems ensued uh, while they were shooting in Mexico, to the point where when Peckinpah eventually saw the rushes of the film that they had shot, he was so incensed that he ended up taking a piss on the screen. And that anecdote has been immortalized as, uh, you know, showbiz lore. And so as a result, because of these technical problems, a bunch of the sequences had to be reshot, and the bad weather didn't help as well. Again, uh, Mother Nature kind of meddled in their business yet again. Many of the crew got sick with the flu during the making of the film. Of course, Peckinpah was boozing heavily throughout the day, which made him especially combative, and he kept butting heads with James Aubrey as well. And, you know, Aubrey, of course, had his part to play in that. He wasn't innocent. And eventually, as with Major Dundee, Uh, Aubrey took the film from Peckinpah and had it heavily recut and the version that was released in 1973 at first was disowned by Peckinpah and I think a lot of the people who were involved in the film as well and naturally the critics hated it. Luckily a director's cut of the film has since seen the light of day and it is much more highly regarded. It's heralded as one of Peckinpah's best films and one of the best westerns, one of the best modern westerns, period. You know, a lot of Peckinpah's films, you know, critics say they had a sort of lyrical quality to them, and that's certainly true of this film. It's basically this sort of, kind of a poetic eulogy of the Old West. And also, it's a revisionist western, much like The Wild Bunch. It's not historically accurate. It begins... In 1909, I believe the real Pat Garrett was killed in 1908. And, you know, that's just one of several historical inaccuracies. You know, some poetic license was taken, but uh, it doesn't take away from the film at all. It's fantastic. And the next film I want to talk about was the next one Peckinpah made the year after this, and that film is called Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. And this one is a Western, but it's not a period Western. It's a modern Western. It's set in the present day. And it follows a guy named Benny, who runs a tourist bar in Mexico and learns of a bounty that's been placed on a man named Alfredo Garcia who is a playboy who's impregnated the daughter of a wealthy and powerful man named El Jefe, the boss. And El Jefe has put out a million-dollar bounty for Garcia's head. And Benny, who's a former army man, is approached by two hitmen, learns of the contract on Garcia's head, cuts a deal with a crime syndicate to bring them Garcia's head for $10,000, so he and his longtime girlfriend Elita can make a new start. And it turns out that not only does Benny know Garcia, but he finds out that Elita and Garcia had a bit of a dance, they had an affair. And despite his reluctance to fully commit to Elita and marry her, it eats at him. And furthermore, Benny learns from Elita that Garcia was actually killed in a car accident, not long before the bounty was placed on him, which leaves Benny with little choice but to head to Garcia's village, find his grave, and basically rob it of Garcia's head. And so while they make the trek to the village, the relationship between Benny and Elita is tested.
1: Listen! The church cuts off the feet, fingers, any other goddamn thing from the saints, don't they? Well, what the hell? Alfredo's our saint. He's the saint of our money, and I'm gonna bar up. piece of it. All right. I'm gonna take it to him, and then I'm gonna go, you know? Because I figure everything is gonna be over with us. I don't want any more of that. Oh, please. Many Mino, please. Let's put it together. Just make it round, and let's go back and forget about the whole thing. We'll never talk about it again. Jesus, just being together is is enough. No, it's not, baby. It
0: takes pan, bread, dinero. And after he finds Garcia's grave and manages to dig him up and take the head... The two of them are attacked by crooks, who are, of course, looking to collect on the bounty, right? There's a rat race that ensues, so they can collect a million dollars. Elita is killed by their attackers. Benny is buried, but he's alive. He discovers Elita's body, and he spends the rest of the film tracking down his attackers, reclaiming the head, outgunning hitmen, crooks, and eventually he manages to make it to El Jefe's compound, only to see El Jefe have the head tossed to his pigs. And upon seeing this, Benny is disgusted that after so many people were killed... Elida included, obviously, that El Jefe just sees the head and has it tossed to his pigs like it's nothing more than a piece of garbage. You know, it's maybe a split second of satisfaction upon seeing the head return to him. And it's after seeing this that Benny basically decides to take action on principle. And I won't say any more about Benny's fate. And like I said, it's a modern Western. It's incredibly violent. Again, another peck and paw staple. There's a very high body count. But above all else, it's a love story, fucked up as it sounds. You know, and really, especially after the two of them are attacked and Elida is killed, I think the film basically becomes about Benny sort of coming to terms with her dalliance with Garcia and, you know, trying to find some kind of closure, both for her affair and, I think, for his failure to commit to her before then. And that becomes the reason for his mission to deliver the head to El Jefe. The money becomes meaningless to him. And it doesn't really have the wide scope or the wide commentary that the Wild Bunch does or that Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid does... You know, there's an intimacy to this story, because the meat of it is basically just the relationship between these two people. And I think there's a lot of Peckinpah in this story. Peckinpah himself. And I think that Benny is some version of Peckinpah himself. the Warts and all, all his flaws, his self-loathing, the mistakes he's made... And maybe there are some parallels in there with some of the mistakes Peckinpah made with his wife Begonia. Who knows? I mean, I'm just speculating. But a lot of critics have theorized this, and I think there might be some truth to it. Now let's talk about the cast for a little bit. Warren Oates is the lead in this. He plays Benny. And like I said, he was another Peckinpah regular. And it's a wonderful performance from him, I gotta say. Like I said, he's probably playing a version of Peckinpah in this. And it's a great show of range from Warren Oates. Because there's a lot of different notes he's gotta hit. Again, we talked about that self-loathing, that regret... That jealousy of her affair with Garcia. And there's some great little details to his character as well. You know, the sunglasses, that awful white suit he wears, and his shitty clip on tie, and, you know, the beat up jalopy that he drives around. Uh, it's, it's a great character and a wonderful performance from him.
1: Jesus, I don't know how you can get money from a dead body. I mean, I don't believe that people in what they say. I take him proof his head. His head! For proof! But it's a crime, Benny. You're mad. He's dead! Shut up! (laughs) But you wanted to desecrate the grave. Give me that crap. There's nothing sacred about a hole in the ground, or a man that's in it, or you, or me.
0: Isela vega plays elita his uh, his girlfriend and she is great in this as well and she's her character is put through a lot and i believe this was one of the first films that she had made in english and it's a great performance from her can
1: we find a new place
0: With alfredo's help we do
1: anything i we're not doing that i go on doing commercials and uh, pretty soon you can buy your place Bullshit, oh baby that's not my place Good stop for a bunch of tourists. This time I'm moving up. Oh, mijo. We're moving up. And most important, at least to me, is we're together, Benny. We're together. (laughs) And we marry
0: someday in church. Robert Weber and Gig Young play the two hitmen who approach Benny at his bar and tell them about the hunt for Garcia. And these two actors are basically playing against type. They're both these sort of clean-cut and kind of understated guys. There's a bit of a gay subtext to the two characters. And the two of them aren't in it for very long, but they're very, very good performances.
1: I do recognize your name. Oh, you know the name Garcia? Sure. It's like Jones or Smith. <laughs> We're at the Hotel Camino Real. If you could come up with anything, we'd be glad to see you. Bring that with you. Well, don't worry. If he's alive, I'll find him. Well, oh, uh, alive is our no problem. Well, uh, how about dead or alive? How about that? Dead. Just dead.
0: Robert Webber, for one thing, was in Twelve Angry Men, the great Sidney Lumet film. He plays one of the jurors, and Gig Young won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for a film called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? But Gig Young a troubled man to say the least Uh, I think like Peckinpah he had a serious drinking problem and he ended up shooting his wife and himself we have Emilio Fernandez comes back in this yet again he plays El Jefe and Helmut Dantin I believe that's how you pronounce his last name he was an Austrian actor and uh, later worked as a producer as well. He was a producer on this film, for one thing, and as an actor, he was in Casablanca and Mrs. Miniver, and he shows up in this as one of the members of the syndicate who agrees to pay Benny 10000 to uh, retrieve the head for them. And lastly, we have Chris Christopherson and Donnie Fritz. In small parts, they play two bikers who cross paths with uh, Benny and Elita, and Chris Christopherson's character tries to rape her, and it's this confrontation with the two of them that first pushes Benny to violence.
1: We button in. Yeah, a little bit. Well, we'll leave if you wants to. That fire looks mighty good, though. Hey, I think I got a cold from that chick last week. She was hacking like a goddamn coal mine. You play that thing? Not much. My wife does. No kidding. Hey, you know an old song called Cielito lindo son
2: See. Si. How about that?
0: And interestingly enough, James Coburn and Peter Falk were considered as Benny before Warren Oates was cast. Uh, I've read this somewhere. I don't know if it's 100% true. Coburn certainly makes sense because he had worked with Peckinpah several times before. Peter Falk would have (laughs) been... I love him, but that would have been strange casting as Benny. I don't know how he could have pulled that off. Uh, But he does have a great rage in him, Peter Falk did, for whatever that's worth. Uh, But in any case, I digress. Uh, Also, the comedian Mort Saul, who was a friend of Peckinpah's from what I understand, he was initially cast as one of the hitmen, the Gig Young part, uh, but he had to back out. I think it conflicted with his uh, his touring schedule. And interestingly, about the production of this film, Peckinpah reportedly, uh, according to a few accounts, he was going through some domestic troubles at the time this film was being made, and he was also heavily medicated, from what I've read, during filming, And this film was was a rarity as well for Peckinpah in the sense that it was made and put out basically as he'd intended, for one thing. There was no interference from uh, producers or backers on uh, the final cut, luckily. Uh, And it was also made with a low budget. It didn't go over well with critics, unfortunately, at the time it was released, and it didn't end up making its budget back. But yet again, this is a recurring thing with Peckinpah's work over the years. Uh, It's become a cult favorite and uh, it is heralded as one of Peckinpah's better films, and I agree completely. I like it a lot. It's one of those films I kind of had to sit and chew on a little bit at the end of it, just trying to make sense of the whole thing, but I do think, ultimately, it is a love story above all else. But, of course, it's done Peckinpah's way, right? (laughs) It is his ultra-violent way. Unfortunately, though, because bringing the head of Alfredo Garcia was a commercial failure, Peckinpah found himself in a similar spot as uh, when he made The Getaway. He was in dire need of a hit. That prompted him to take on the job of directing a film called The Killer Elite, which came out in 1975, and it was starring Robert Duvall and the great James Caan, who passed away recently. May rest in peace. A wonderful actor. My favorite performance of James Caan's is The Gambler. Of course, he's best known for The Godfather as Sonny, The Gambler, and those early 70s performances from James Caan especially are, I think, are his best, and Thief as well, the Michael Mann film, which came out in 81. But I absolutely love him in The Gambler. And I've talked about that film a few times on this show, and I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. May rest in peace. Uh, But in any case, the killer elite was not a success. Unfortunately, it was a failure. And a couple of sources have reported that James Conn and his entourage are responsible for introducing Peckinpah to cocaine. Although I have seen conflicting reports as well. I have read elsewhere that it was Warren Oates who in fact introduced Peckinpah to the old snow during the making of uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. That may have been true, but yet again, I mean, it was the 70s and coke was pretty much all over the place on movie sets. I don't know which account is true. But in any case, Peckinpah from the mid-70s onwards basically added cocaine to his list of vices to go with the booze. And so, his next film after The Killer Elite was called Cross of Iron. That came in 1977, and it was a World War II film, and it had a great cast. He reunited with James Coburn in it, Maximilian Schell, the great Austrian actor who won an Oscar for Judgment at Nuremberg, James Mason, the great British actor, and David Warner yet again. He uh, comes back to work with Peckinpah on this. And it got some decent reviews. It, the cast, especially in their performances, were lauded by critics. But uh, unfortunately, the film wasn't a huge success. And the year after that, Peckinpah remained pretty prolific through the 70s, despite his, uh, his damaged reputation and his temper and his combative streak. In 1978, he made a film called Convoy, which basically capitalized on that whole CB radio craze at the time. Smokey and the Bandit had come out the year before then with uh, Burt Reynolds. And it's a great cast. I gotta say, it's pretty solid. I mean, Chris Christopherson plays the lead. He came back to work with Peckinpah on this, as did Ali McGraw. Ernest Borgnine plays the sheriff, you know, the main antagonist of the film. Uh, Bert Young, one of the great character actors. Uh, Franklin Ajay, Madge Sinclair. Pretty solid cast. It didn't get good reviews, but it did do well at the box office. Although, unfortunately, even though Convoy was commercially successful, Peckinpah had basically become an outcast by then in Hollywood. To the point where Don Siegel, his old mentor... Uh, offered him the chance to do some second-unit directing on his film Jinxed in 1981 with Bette Midler and Rip Torn, and it did kind of restore his standing a little bit. Uh, And in 1983, Peckinpah directed his last film called The Osterman Weekend, which was a suspense film, and another one with a great cast, Rutger Hauer, John Hurt, Burt Lancaster, Dennis Hopper, Chris Sarandon. He's one of my people, by the way. And it's an anomaly in uh, Peckinpah's body of work in that he finished it on time and on budget. But unfortunately, the producers took it from him, they recut it, and uh, the reviews weren't great. And so uh, it was Peckinpah's last film. It was a very, very sad end to a, a very tumultuous career with a lot of a lot of failures, quite frankly, and a lot of frustration. Much of which Peckinpah was responsible for himself. I mean, the man was very self-destructive, but in any case. Uh, and so ultimately, on December 28, 1984, Peckinpah died at the age of 59. He did not live long. The drinking and drugs and his... His years of hard living really took their toll on him. He had heart problems as well. And he did not age well. There aren't a ton of interviews uh, of him out there on YouTube and such, but the ones that that are there, he looks rough. He died at the age of 59. He did not live to be 60. He looks easily 10 years older in some of those interviews. And uh, ultimately what happened was, uh, while he was in Mexico, doctors had found a blood clot in his lung. And he was flown to LA, and he went into cardiac arrest at the hospital, and that was that. And so, in summation, if I may, just to sort of, you know, bring some order to everything I've said and try to tie everything together. You know, you look back at his his career and, you know, the legacy and the body of work he left behind, Peckinpah did redefine the American Western, like I said. You know, out with these old sort of mythologized ideas about the Old West. And one thing I like that he did in both uh, The Wild Bunch and in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid was that he, he showed you know, how easily you could go from being a criminal to a lawman and how the line between the two was often blurred. And that's especially true, you know, you see in the Wild Bunch, Deke Thornton, the Robert Ryan character, and Pat Garrett and and Billy the Kid. These are both two reluctant lawmen, essentially, and they're both ex-bandits. One of them is operating out of self-preservation. One of them is operating out of self-interest. There's nothing noble or righteous about what they're doing or their decisions to become lawmen. Deke Thornton essentially just doesn't want to end up back in jail. And Pat Garrett, like I said, wants to enjoy a long life and a secure life. And the two of them pay the price for it with their integrity and with a job that neither man wants to do. You know, you heard a lot about that in the Old West as well. How a lot of ex-bandits and ex-outlaws, you know, ended up getting deputized or becoming U.S. Marshals and stuff like that.
1: I believe you know of me. Bill Kermit. (sighs) One at four, so you're down seven rivers, ain't you? That'd be me, Sheriff. Killed old C.B. Denning last year at Silver City for calling you a cheatin' Marty. that be me, Alamosa Bill. Well, Bill, I'm going to make you my deputy.
0: And again, I want to touch on that other theme that we mentioned before: is the fading way of life of the old frontier in the old West, and it's a very personal thing to Peck and Paw. Because like I said at the beginning of the show, he was a descendant himself of settlers in the Old West. Spent a lot of time on his grandfather's ranch, was familiar with a lot of those old traditions of the Old West. And like we see in some of those films, Peckinpah's family essentially changed with the times. His ancestors were loggers and ranchers. His grandfather was a rancher who eventually went into politics, became a superior court judge, became a U.S. congressman. Peckinpah's own parents were lawyers, and I think even his brother became a superior court judge. And I want to talk about the violence in his films. If nothing else, that's basically what ties them together. And the graphic violence in Paw's films earned him the nickname Bloody Sam, for one thing. <laughs> and at the time these films came out, a lot of the critics, you know, they condemned Paw's films, and they said that the violence in them was excessive or masturbatory, and that his films kind of glamorized it. And I disagree completely, that's far from the case, especially if you hear Paw's interviews and hear him explain what he aimed to demonstrate with the, the violence in his films. And first and foremost, I mean, to put it in simple terms, he wanted to show violence for what it is. He wanted to demonstrate what it looks like and feels like to get gunned down and trampled. And like I said at the beginning of the show, there's nothing quick or clean about it. And it's evident in all four of the films we've covered today. For a lot of the characters in Peckinpah's films, violence isn't just a means to an end or an act of self-defense. It's a way of life for a lot of these characters. You're not at the risk of sounding like a hack. And it's not just a way of life. It's a part of the fabric of society in Peckinpah's films. And in The Wild Bunch, that's basically the case for everyone involved. Not just for the wild bunch themselves, but for the bounty hunters pursuing them, the Mexican federales and Mapache himself, the general, the Mexicans and the peasants who are rebelling against Mapache and his troops, and even the civilians. There's a very, very telling shot of a woman in the film who's breastfeeding her baby with an ammo belt wrapped around her chest. I mean, that basically tells you everything you need to know. And that goes for straw dogs as well. Violence is a way of life for those, those attackers, those men who terrorize David and Amy. But it's shown a little differently, like I said before. There's that sort of tribalism among the men who terrorize them, right? that sort of clannish pack mentality that we mentioned before. And there's another very, very telling image in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Fairly early on in the film, we see the children playing around the noose on the gallows where Billy the Kid is supposed to be executed. And there's another thing, some recurring imagery in in Peckinpah's work. I don't mean to sound like a shitty English professor, but, you know, what are you going to (laughs) do? There's uh, a few moments in these films that we've talked about where Peckinpah sort of juxtaposes religion and violence. He basically shows the two going hand in hand, and there's a little bit of that in The Wild Bunch, where Strother Martin's character, one of the bounty hunters, we see him wearing a cross with a bullet on it. There's a scene in Straw Dogs as well where Hoffman, his character David, is talking with a local priest, and they're jousting a little bit.
2: I have a grant to study uh, possible structures in stellar interiors and uh, the uh, implications regarding the radiation characteristics. Am I boring anyone?
1: Radiation? That's an unfortunate dispensation. It surely is. Yes, indeed as long as it's not another bomb. You're a scientist. Can you deny the responsibility? Can you? After all, there's never been a kingdom given to so much bloodshed as that of Christ.
0: And in Bringing the Head of Alfredo Garcia, we see, in two different moments, we see nuns are present. At the beginning of the film, when El Jefe basically has his daughter beaten to find out who the baby's father is, and yet again at the final shootout. And Peckinpah talked about this in an interview in 1976, and... You know, I will say, there is, there's some truth to it, certainly. Throughout history, a great many religious conflicts have turned violent, certainly. However, I think it is worth noting that the Third Reich, the USSR, and Mao's China, you know, these are some of the most violent and evil regimes in all of history. We're talking tens of millions dead in each. And all of them were secular administrations. And the reason I mention this is because all three of these administrations were active during Peckinpah's lifetime. He was aware of these regimes. And so all this to say that, you know, Peckinpah has a point. I'm not disputing that. There's truth in what he's saying. But I think it's worth noting that organized religion certainly doesn't have a monopoly on violence for whatever that's worth. And there's another thing that he talked about with the Wild Bunch specifically was that the violence in the Wild Bunch, he hoped, would bring some sort of catharsis. You know, you get your fill of all the blood and guts and you see violence for what it really is and then you can sort of close the book on it. But Peckinpah also said he failed to do that. It didn't stop him from from making violent films after that.
1: There was, wasn't was there not a case in the Nigerian Civil War, when some of the soldiers watched The Wild Bunch and were so excited by it, they started shooting and going out and saying they wanted to die like William Holden, in fact, creating mayhem. Does that worry you? That that yes, could have it does
2: very much, and uh, I have to preface this with the fact that this was a French correspondent speaking honestly on what he'd seen. I made The Wild Bunch because I still believed in the Greek theory of catharsis, that by seeing this we would be purged by pity and fear and get this out of our system. I was wrong. If you've noticed, most of my films are now an increasing level of violence, bit by bit, and must take it away because it does no good. I was wrong. They did that. They were attacking, yes, they really did, and they were attacking for me for all the wrong reasons and I stand corrected and I am sick in my heart because of that if one instance like that happened uh, it makes it destroys what I was trying to do catharsis only works in certain as Theodore lips once said it depends upon the viewer and his situation and the artist and uh, it was a total failure I will not
0: make again and he also said something that I thought was interesting, was that he didn't have an answer for what he was putting on screen. You know, he didn't have an answer or a remedy for the violence that seems to be so prevalent in our society, or ubiquitous even. You know, he simply sort of portrayed it and tried to raise a few questions.
1: Is it not part of a, a film director's responsibility to go further than that?
2: Well, Martin Brandt once said in a Kazan picture by John Steinbeck, I'm not the conscience of the world. In Viva Zapata. Uh, it is, but right now I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. Beside the fact that I'm dissecting a piece of cancer that we can look at and put in for to make a biopsy from... I need some doctors to help me. Uh, I don't know. All I know is I'm making cuts and opening a wound so it can drain and the sun can get to it or you can take it out and put it under a microscope and see whether it's cancerous or not. Obviously, it is the cancer of our world, our time, of all our times. And I think somebody much more adequate and better trained than I am can move away from that. And to make a prognosis
0: of our sickness. And I think it's also fair to mention that, you know, Peck and Paul wasn't alone in doing this. You know, because these films, you know, The Wild Bunch, Straw Dogs, Pat Garrett, and Billy the Kid, they all came out at a time when Hollywood films in general were becoming more and more violent. We mentioned The Clockwork Orange earlier. There was The French Connection, which came out in 71, Bonnie and Clyde, which came out a few years earlier in 67. But again, I mean, the violence in those films doesn't take away from their, their value as, you know, these enduring works of art. And that goes for Peckinpah's films as well, I think. And Peckinpah himself was, like I said, a very volatile and combative man, sometimes violent himself. And by many accounts, I mean, he was a fucking madman, let's face it. And probably mentally ill. And I've also read that his boozing, the alcoholism, brought up the worst parts of him. And so maybe these films of his that we've talked about were basically him trying to... I don't know, maybe explore or even exercise some of the darker parts of him. Or, you know, to sort of delve into... You know, some of the things he was afraid he was capable of doing. I don't know, again, I'm just theorizing. But in any case, that's where I'll end it. That's all I've got for Sam Peckinpah today and the violence in his films. I hope I did a good job in analyzing them and uh, trying to demonstrate what he aimed to do with them. And I am planning on doing another episode on Peckinpah in the future. He uh, He was one of the first directors I thought of when I started putting the show together last year. And I knew that he was a mercurial figure and a very polarizing figure and a difficult man to deal with. But, you know, upon doing the research, there was just so much there, all these stories about his battles with the studios and such. Uh, So what I'm going to do, like with Hal Ashby, who I covered recently, I'm going to do another episode on Peckinpah in the future, and that one will focus more on, uh, you know, his battles with the studios and producers and uh, some of the anecdotes that came out of those clashes. Uh, And it'll give me a chance to talk about some of his other films as well a little more, you know, like Major Dundee and The Ballad of Cable Hogue and such. And so that's all I've got for today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. It is greatly appreciated. Please keep it coming. Tell your friends. Tell them I sent you. And like I said at the top of the show, like I do every episode, you can find the show wherever you get your podcasts, as you are probably well aware of by now. Listen, like, subscribe, leave comments, ratings, reviews, whatever you got. Anything that can help the show rank a little better is greatly appreciated, like I always say. You can follow the show on Instagram at Close Set Podcast. And that is the handle. Feel free to shoot a DM if you'd like as well. Those are always welcome. And you can reach the show by email as well at closedsetpod at gmail.com. Any uh, questions, comments, feedback, instructive criticism, any directors you would like to see me come on the show at some point, please feel free. I would love to hear what you have to say. And until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.
2: Basic ingredients are still the same. It's cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians or mainly it's people in conflict. You cannot have drama without conflict. And as we all are too well aware that today, conflict is becoming more and more developed in terms of weapons, assassination, and violence. I try to show things the way they were without breaking, as I said before, aesthetic distance. So the audience was pulled into the screen and involved with the characters. Mm. Death is not pretty, yet I don't want to drive audiences out of the theater. I use gratuitous violence, I want them involved in it so they can smell it and know what it is, how it feels, how it smells.